One of the most perplexing parts of the Christian life is the disappointment we experience due to unanswered prayers. Uh, years ago, I remember one of my daughters coming to me in tears, I mean, literally crying and say to me, saying to me, Dad, I just don't feel like my prayers do any good. Have any of, any of your kids said that before? I just, I don't feel like my prayers work. Uh, I, I feel that way too sometimes. Yeah, honey, me too. It's perplexing. So, so perplexing and, and disappointing. It's not like we're asking God to give us a Mercedes Benz. It's not as though we're asking these selfish prayers. Are we? I mean... Aren't we praying that sick people would be healed, terrible, tragic situations would change, spiritual transformation would take place in people's lives? We pray over and over, nothing happens. As a result, doubts and cynicism take up root in our souls. Well, today's parable in Luke chapter 18 is... You don't find it in any of the other gospel accounts. This one is unique to Luke, and in it, Jesus is going to address the struggle, which is the struggle that every disciple from the first century to the 21st century, uh, from then and now, has experienced. Uh, Why doesn't God answer our prayers, and what are we supposed to do about that? Verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray, Always pray and not give up, he said. In a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and, the word here in the Greek is literally, so that she won't eventually come and give me a black eye. (laughs) And the Lord said, verse 6, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? Will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Simple story. We have a widow on one hand who has been wronged, who keeps appealing to an unjust judge, and eventually, at the end of this long process, she gets what she's asking for, that is justice. It's a simple story because Luke tells us in the very first verse what we're supposed to learn from it. I mean, there's no scratching our heads, pondering, what does this parable mean? He says it right there. You are to keep praying, keep praying, and do not lose heart. Eight verses, short, simple, sweet, and normally when we're reading through our Bible, we just plow right through these, and we really don't take much time to sit down and investigate. I think that's one of the benefits of uh, preaching is, I know it's hard to listen to 30 minutes of monologue, but it does give us an opportunity to kind of slow down and focus 
at a deeper level than we would otherwise. So let's look here to start out with. Let's look at these two characters in the story. What is noteworthy to you about these two characters? They turn out to be complete opposites. They are stereotypical opposites. You have a man, you have a woman. You have a man who is powerful, you have a woman who's powerless. You have a man who is rich and well-to-do, and you have a woman who is poor, uh, and uh, she has no legal representation. She's a widow, and... uh, I mean, the way that the court system worked back in their day is, you know, women don't, didn't go into court. The testimony of woman was actually not allowed in a Jewish court of law in the first century. You know, usually, if there's any legal matter that had to be taken care of, that would be the father's responsibility or one of the brother's responsibilities. But in the parable that, Je- that Jesus tells us, this woman doesn't have any of those. She doesn't have a father. She doesn't have a brother. She certainly doesn't have a husband because that's why she's a widow. She has no advocate. Uh, and then Jesus describes this, uh, the, the polar opposite of her is this, this man who, two descriptors, is godless. He has no fear of God. A judge who has no fear of God is a judge who is going to be on the take. He's going to be corrupt. He'll, he's willing to take bribes. And he has, he has no concern for people, Jesus says. This judge, uh, he doesn't care a lick for people. He doesn't have any compassion for the victim and the victimized. And so if you see the, the contrast, the study and contrast of the story, you realize immediately that this, this widow has no chance. She, she has a snowball's chance in, in Vegas <laughs> that, that she's going to get what she is asking for. Incidentally, one of the sub-themes in the Gospel of Luke is how there were, there were many oppressed widows, many poor, weak women in the land of Israel that day that were suffering at the hands of terrible leaders, terrible judges, Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herods, who were longing for the day when the Messiah will come and will care for the victims of injustice. Mary's Magnificat, which we utilized at the beginning of our worship service today, that that's all about Mary longing for the day when, when justice for the poor, the woman, the downtrodden is given. This widow doesn't look like she has a chance. Uh, it's looking pretty bad. The only thing she has going for her is what? It's her persistent determination. She is determined to pester this judge morning, noon, and night. And even that doesn't look like it's going to work. She, she knocks on his doors a hundred times. Nothing changes. She feels like, through the whole pestering process, that nothing is going to change. She's losing heart. She's about to quit. Why do you stand far off, she asks. Will you forget me forever, Lord? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why do you hide your face from me? Has... Has your steadfast love ceased forever from me? Will you be angry forever? Will you be silent forever? What I just read to you were the Psalms. Psalm 10, 13, 22, 44, 77, 79, and 90. Brothers and sisters, 
you and I are not the very first people in the world who feel like prayer isn't working. Um, we're not the first people in the world that, that struggled with this concept of the silence of God. Uh, why isn't my prayer? Why, why, why doesn't he answer? Does he even exist? Is he even there? If, if he's there, then is he, dare I say this, is he an unjust judge? Now, if Jesus hadn't told this parable himself, I doubt any one of us would have dared to make the comparison, comparing God to this crook and creep and, and, and phony of a judge. But Jesus makes the comparison. And I appreciate very much him doing so because you and I have thought that before, haven't we? We have thought that God was either not there or capricious or unjust. Jesus is just putting... He's just saying what has passed through our minds a a time or two. What we see in the Psalms and what uh, we should learn from the Psalms is in those moments when we're struggling with the silence of God and he's not answering our prayers and we're not getting anywhere, instead of doing what we most naturally do at that moment, which is to clam up, go on radio silence, just shut your mouth. Instead of doing that, the psalmist have the courage to acknowledge their despair, the courage to acknowledge their despair, and vocalize the perplexity that they're struggling with. Why? Are you going to be angry forever? Are you going to be silent forever? Will you hide your face from me forever? It takes courage to do that, brothers and sisters, to actually vocalize. I was on a run this past Tuesday, and I was listening to Nathan John Feuerstein. Anybody familiar with that name? Nathan John Feuerstein. Ah, Caleb. The rest of you never heard of of him. Um, If you had told me 10 years ago, if you had told me five years ago that I would be all into Christian rap, I just would have, I would have said, you're crazy. I can't. But, you know, that's my favorite musical genre, especially when I run. And uh, Nathan John Feuerstein, his stage name is NF. NF is, uh, he's a very raw, it's a raw Christian rapper, if that exists. (laughs) And one of his albums is entitled Mansion. In this, in the album, I think it's maybe his second album, Mansion, he repeatedly comes back to this this image, well-known image, that our souls, that we've got this really large house inside of us with many, many rooms. He keeps coming back to the image of a mansion. And he says, there are doors in the mansion that I'm simply not willing to enter into. Uh, Some rooms are filled with good emotions and dreams, and I spend a lot of time in those rooms, but I'll be walking down the corridor of the mansion, and I won't go into that room because... I know what's in that room, and that room, that that room hurts too much for me to to enter into it. His, uh, I, I believe that his story is he was physically abused as a child, and his mother OD'd on pain pills. She was a drug addict, and she she killed herself. And he says, "There's rooms in my mansion uh, I will not enter into. Dark memories, deep disappointments." And so here it is. I'm running and I'm listening to NF and. And I realized at that moment that there are rooms in my mansion that I, I don't want to go into. I don't have the story of, of abuse 
that he has, but there are dark cobweb rooms of disappointment that I just be happy. I'm very pleasantly content to just walk by and never open that door. Why I decided to open that door on Tuesday, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe because I'm supposed to preach the sermon, but I did. At that moment, I, I just walked into one of those rooms and just sadness and disappointment just comes gushing out of me because I've, I took the time to acknowledge that it existed and then you know, did the hard work of vocalizing it to God. And isn't that, have you ever done that before? Isn't it, maybe it's cathartic, maybe there's just something, there's, it's hard, but there's something wonderful about vocalizing the despair and the sadness and the disappointment to him and saying, Lord, this is, this is real, and, and why? Why aren't you answering these prayers? I mean, normal, many times it is centered around unanswered prayer. These are things that we have asked him for time and time and time again, but I found that by opening the door and, um, and vocalizing it, you know what it did? It made me want to keep praying. It made me want to keep going and keep praying. And, uh, well, that's a long personal anecdote story, but I hope you can relate to it. Back to the parable. Verse 5. I already told you the humor that is in the Greek in verse 5, where the judge says, um, <clears throat> because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so she won't eventually come and attack me. Um, does God want us to pray that way? Does he want us to pray violently, relentlessly? Should we stick to our guns and keep making the same request, asking him the same things over and over? Should we pester God like a violent widow? Or is there a time when we're supposed to, to stop praying for the same thing and, and leave it behind and submit to my father. You know, my father knows best. I'm going to have to just stop praying for this anymore. And the answer to that question, it's a complicated answer. Second um, Corinthians chapter 12. Very instructive passage on this topic in, in my estimation. It's a very famous passage where Paul is praying to God about the removal of the, the so-called thorn in his flesh. He says, three times, thrice, I ask God to remove this thing from me. He never actually describes or tells his readers precisely what is the thorn in his flesh, only that it's there and it's a, a messenger of Satan and it's a constant source of torment. Three times I prayed uh, that God would remove it. Uh, remember that three times in the Bible is a Hebrew idiom. It's an idiomatic phrase. It doesn't mean that he only prayed three times. It means three times is over and over and over again. I asked, I prayed so many times, God, take it away. God, take it away. God, remove the thorn. Please take it away. And uh, we don't know how long Paul prayed that prayer, but it certainly seems it was for a very long time. Do you know what happens in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? Eventually, Paul realizes, get this, that God is telling him, you need to change your prayer. He hears God speak to him. And whether or not God spoke to him in a dream or in a vision, I don't know. But he hears God say to him, what does he say? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. 
And in effect, what God is doing in that moment is saying, Paul, I won't take it away. Stop asking me to remove the thorn because I won't, I won't take it away. My grace is sufficient for you. And, and so here's what I think happens. It, Paul never explicitly says, I think at that moment, Paul's praying changes. And no longer does he keep saying, God, take it away, remove it. Instead, he says, God, help me to rely upon your grace and strength and power so that I can endure it and so that your name would be praised. He changes his prayer. So how long should we keep praying persistently the same request? Are we always supposed to be the widow? Um, How long? I think the answer to that question is you pray until God shows you otherwise. Sometimes God will show you otherwise by means of his providence. He's going to change the circumstances. And then you know that you're supposed to pray differently. Um, I can think of... You know, maybe some of you, you prayed for your children or you prayed for your parents for years and years that they would have a good and healthy marriage. You prayed for their marriage and then you know, tragedy strikes and their marriage falls apart and they go through a divorce. Well, at that moment, providence, providence has dictated that you have to pray differently. And so your prayer shifts. You begin to pray that God will use the failure in their marriage to move them closer to him. Sometimes he's, he, uh, he changes us, he changes the prayer through providence. And other times, like in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you receive a new sense of his leading. You just sense your father's heart and you realize that your father wants to give you something different. And so you, you pray differently. Tim Keller, writing in his book on prayer, he talks about this delicate balancing act that every Christian has to go through between kind of the two extremes of submission, thy will be done, Father, okay, whatever you... Submission versus widow persistence. Uh, I'm going to keep at it. And he says, on the one hand, if we overstress submission to the Father in prayer, then we're going to become too passive And we will never pray with remarkable force and arguments that we see in Abraham in Genesis 18 or what we see with Moses in Exodus 33 pleading for God for mercy, uh, Abraham pleading for Sodom and Gomorrah. We will never have that kind of, uh, the the force of our arguments. We'll never be like Habakkuk or Job who question God's actions of history. We'll we'll just be, um, we'll just be, oh, whatever. But on the other hand, he says, if we overstress the widow's persistence and we don't have a sensitivity toward what God wants to give us, if we're not aware at all of that God might want to give us something different, then we're going to be extremely angry when God doesn't give me what I asked or extremely depressed because, uh, because he hasn't done what I expected him to do. So Keller concludes this section by saying, quote, it usually requires years of experience in order to find the proper balance. Isn't that true? It usually requires years of experience, you know, praying petitionary prayers before you ever quite, and most of us aren't very good at it. I mean, do you know exactly when you're supposed to stop your one prayer and, and shift it? I, most of us, it's more art than science. Most of us are not very good at it, so... Verse 3. Look with me at verse 3. 
So far, I've been talking about prayer in general. The principle of a parable is you're to keep praying and not lose heart, and that, that's a principle that would apply to all sorts of prayers. But I want you to look and notice in verse 3, Jesus has a very specific kind of prayer in mind. I would be remiss if I didn't point out that there's, he is angling at something specific. What kind of prayer does Jesus have in mind? Verse 3, it is the prayer for justice. Grant me justice against my adversary. Justice is one of the very first desires and requests that any child in this world actually utters. <laughs> they don't have to be taught that it's not fair that my brother got the cookie and I did not. From the very first moment we can talk, we are uttering to our parents uh, the, this d- innate desire inside of us that life be fair and we should get justice. Verse 7. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones, his elect, who cry out to him day and night? The answer is, of course he will. Will he keep putting them off? Of course he won't. God will certainly do what is right for his people. This persistent widow, she represented the the oppressed righteous in Israel who are waiting for salvation that the Messiah would bring and who were longing for the justice of the coming kingdom. Uh, he's saying, I will bring justice to you and I will be bring t- justice to widows after you. And that leads us back to the thorny issue we started the whole sermon in. On, uh, why doesn't he? Why doesn't he answer our prayers for justice speedily uh, as, as we would hope and, and, and expect him to? Um, why, why unanswered prayer? And I don't know what answer you give to the problem of unanswered prayer, but I'm going to offer you two reasons, recognizing, kind of caveating at the beginning, that these are not complete explanations for unanswered prayer, but I just want you to briefly consider two two things. First, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2, on the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, it says this about God. It says that there is but one only living and true God, who is infinite in being, infinite in perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, immense, eternal, and the key word, incomprehensible. Incomprehensible. If God answered every prayer that we offered to him in the affirmative, just like that, if we always got a one-to-one correlation between what we ask and a speedy reply, I guarantee you we wouldn't think of him as incomprehensible. We would think of him like he was a genie, a genie in a bottle. If God always just snapped to your attention like some celestial bellhop, you would not think of him in terms of being invisible, immense, eternal, and incomprehensible. You would think of him in terms of being a dog. Secondly, uh, again, if there was this overwhelming correspondence between what we asked for, prayers for justice, and what we got, um, I I suspect that the church would be filled with a lot of people who were attracted to Christianity for the wrong reasons. People would want to marry Jesus for his money, not because they loved him. Remember the story in Acts chapter 8? You have this character who's called Simon the Magician, Simon the Sorcerer. And he sees the apostles doing 
powerful works through the power of the Holy Spirit, healing people and this and this and that and, and so forth. And he says, I want to become a Christian too. Let me, let me in on this. So long as you just give me that power, I, I, I want to be part of it. I'm in. Here's a little money. <laughs> Can I have the power? And if, there was, if God was always doing exactly what we asked him for, we'd have a, uh, we'd have a whole lot of people in the churches who were, who were Simons, not Marys. You, know, you may have a different answer to the problem of, of, of unanswered prayer. And I have other ones in addition to that. But whatever you think, we must always remember the extraordinary magnitude of what prayer is in the first place. So Keller, later on in his book, he says that you ought to, before you bow your head, close your eyes, and fold your hands, before you pray, you should give yourself a little pep talk, a little speech, you know, kind of before the big game. You are to, you're supposed to take yourself before you pray and say, self, do you realize God is here? (laughs) God is before you, behind you, in your right, on your right hand, on your left hand, within these walls? Self, do you realize that he who fills immensity has come down to be here with you and to listen to you? You are about to bow at his feet and speak to God. You get to talk to him as freely as you would to your best friend in this world and not a single syllable from your lips are, are going to escape his ear. Self, do not presume to believe that he is obligated to give you everything you want. Indeed, he would be cruel to give you everything that you ever wanted because so many of our requests, in hindsight, are, are, they would bring about our destruction if he granted them. Okay, closing in on the end of this. Uh, Jesus tells the widow, urges the widow to keep praying prayers, not generic prayers, but specifically prayers of justice. And my question to you, do you do that? Is that a regular part of your prayer life? You know, justice, vindication, prayers. Um, Do you pray? I, I want you to be praying, and Jesus wants you to be praying for seemingly hopeless justice cases. That's what we have here. Hopeless cases where you just can't possibly see how justice and righteousness are going to be done. Um, are you, do you keep praying for the unborn? Do you keep praying that they would be protected and that justice would be done for them? Do you keep praying for the poor mothers uh, who, who can't see any way that they can care for a child who, who are poor and in the hood and it seems like the only option they have is to abort this baby? Do you pray that that justice and righteousness would be done? Uh, Hopeless justice cases. Do you pray for Syria? Oh my, oh my goodness. Do we pray for the church in the Middle East? Do we pray for her vindication? Do we pray for the the travesty of of racial injustice that is found all throughout on our nation's streets? We've got to be praying, persistently praying these prayers for justice. And finally, what I would say, the most important word that you can pray, there, there's, one, there's a one-word prayer that you can pray which encapsulates all of this. What word is that? 
To my knowledge, the only Aramaic word that was ever carried into the Christian church at the end of the first century. So the Hebrews spoke Aramaic, not Hebrew. And, um, you know, as the church becomes more and more Gentile, less and less Jewish, everybody speaks Greek. The whole New Testament is written in Greek. But there just so happens to be one Aramaic word which is carried over. And do we know what, what it is? The first part of the word is Mara which is the Aramaic word for Lord. It is followed by the letter N, which is the possessive pronoun, our. And it's followed, that is followed by Atha, which is the Aramaic verb, which means to come. There's a one word prayer that captures all of our longings for justice. And that word is Maranatha, come Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Fascinatingly, according to, I've talked to you about the Didache before. The Didache was probably the earliest Christian document we have other than the the Bible written at the end of the first century. Early Christian instruction manual. The, The prayer that they prayed at the end of their Lord's Supper liturgy, at the end of the first century, according to the Didache, was Maranatha. That's what they say at the end of the Lord's Supper. Maranatha. Maranatha, come, Lord. Do you want to see justice and righteousness come into this world? Don't you want the gospel of Jesus Christ to be vindicated and proven true? Don't you want the proud and the arrogant brought down off their lofty perch and the poor and oppressed lifted up? Don't you want the glory of God and the greatness of our Savior to be shouted from every rooftop? If you do, then pray, come, Lord. Maranatha, let your kingdom come and your will be done. How long... When was the last time you prayed Maranatha? Pray Maranatha. Verse 10. Mm. Verse 8. What a haunting way to end the parable. Did you catch this when I read it? You would think that Jesus would end his parable with kind of a go team, keep praying, carry on. No, 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 no. Jesus is a little more mysterious than that. How does he finish his parable with this haunting, sobering question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will he find, will he find you praying Maranatha when he comes? Will he find a church full of, last week it was a church full of lepers, to, this week it is, will he find a church full of widows who are praying persistent Longing prayers for justice. Let it be so of us. All saints, leper, widows, Presbyterian church, pray Maranatha. Come Lord Jesus. May he give to us the justice and righteousness this world is longing for. Amen.